I'm so excited for today's guest as we kick off the new year for 2023. Boy, do we have a great one today. Mr. Barry Habib, the CEO of MBS Highway, is an American entrepreneur and frequent media resource for his mortgage and housing experiences. You've probably seen him on CNN and Fox News. This gentleman is the real deal. He's an Amazon number one best-selling author for his book, Money in the Streets. He's widely credited for saving the mortgage industry when it was in turmoil in 2020 during the COVID pandemic from margin calls due to the Federal Reserve's actions. His presentation to the Federal Reserve created stability at a critical time when our industry needed it. He's got many notable awards. As many of you know, he's the three-time Crystal Ball Award winner by Zillow and Pulsonomics for the most accurate real estate forecast out of 150 of the top economists in the United States. And we're about to get some of that on this show today as we kick it off. In 2019, he was the Mortgage Professional of the Year. He also was the finalist for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year. He was named to the Mortgage Global 100 list, the St. Armand Ventures Businessman of the Year in 2021, and he was named as the list of 100 people to watch in 2023. As an innovator, Barry has founded many successful businesses across different verticals, such as the Mortgage Market Guide, Healthcare Imaging Solutions, Certified Mortgage Associates, and he was a founding partner in Experience.com. During his mortgage sales career, Barry personally originated over $2 billion in volume. He was a lead producer and a managing partner for The Rock of Ages, the 27th longest running show in Broadway history and produced Chris Angel's Mind Freak at Planet Hollywood in Las Vegas. He's the highest rated speaker and trainer for over 25 years in mortgages and real estate. I'm so honored to have him on the show today. And Barry has recently, over the last couple of years, launched his Certified Mortgage Advisor course. And it's renowned for elevating the level of professionalism and mortgage knowledge in the industry, which I personally can attest to. I'm so excited to have Barry kick off the new year. I hope you guys enjoy this show. Welcome back to the What's Your One More podcast. Today, I'm joined by Barry Habib, the CEO of MBS Highway. And as you heard from the intro, a man of many accomplishments. I'm so excited to have him on the show today. And I cannot thank you enough for joining us uh, from South Florida, being here with us on the show today. Great to be with you, Quentin. Yeah, thank you very much. So, Barry, you know, you're you're known for your forecast. Matter of fact, the Crystal Ball Warner, uh, Crystal Ball Award winner, excuse me, from Zillow and Pulsonomics uh, over the last three years, and you were named one of the top 100 people to watch in 2023. And that's not because um, you just, you know, throw things out there. You you forecast a tremendous amount of detail, and it's very accurate. Um, the thing that you pulled off with the Federal Reserve in 2020 and the margin calls and the presentations that you did and really how you kept mortgage professionals at ease during a time that was very critical and uh, the industry was was very much losing their mind on those margin calls as well as what was going on in the market was just unprecedented. It was such a great job you did. And uh, I know it helped keep my sanity during that time as well. So uh, I wanted to thank you for that as we got started here. But let's talk about that. Much appreciated. 2020 to 2021, I mean, Anybody that's been in the business, chalk it up, record year, completely different than uh, the environment we're in right now. You know, I think in the environment we're in right now, there's a lot of loan officers, there's a lot of real estate agents, buyers and sellers. There's this level of uncertainty in the market. Um, you know, what what is, in your opinion, is causing that uncertainty besides the increase in rates? What else could be causing that out there? Change is always difficult, and we've seen a dramatic rate of change. We've seen a change in mortgage rates in a very short period of time go from, let's call it 3% to around 7%. That's a very, very large rate of change. Also, we've seen housing increase in price. So that's that's something that's causing an exacerbation of that change for somebody looking to purchase a home. But at the same time, activity has slowed quite a bit. And there's a few reasons for that. One is the lack of inventory. 
And, you know, there's a double-edged sword there. People don't understand how to evaluate housing because there's housing, the economic activity driver, the driver of GDP, and that's the number of transactions because it does create a lot of activity. And that's slowed quite precipitously. Okay, we know that because, you know, first of all, the lack of inventory means there's going to be less sales. Mm -hmm. And, And in addition to that, you have a significant increase in the cost to purchase a home. So people that normally would be out there buying homes are going to kind of be in hibernation for two reasons. If it's your first home, if you're forming a household, there's a bit of sticker shock, but also you have people now that want to go and move up to that home, but they're sitting with a 3% mortgage. And not only would the move up home be more expensive naturally, maybe it's a little bit bigger, maybe it's gonna in an area that <clears throat> they want to aspire to be in, but you're giving up that 3% and going to a 7% loan and and those things are are causing some hesitancy and, and that's why you're seeing activity slow but at the same time then there's real estate the investment mm-hmm. and real estate the investment has not fared that badly when you think and look it's it's local so it's different markets but we've seen in the past 2 years almost a 40% level of appreciation in price and for all of the hoopla over housing bubble and this and that, you know, this is first of all a normal seasonal time where things kind of slow. So you normally can see things slow down. And I'll explain why there's a seasonality to it that people don't understand. But we've come off the highs less than 3% nationally. Now, some areas a little bit more because they got a little over their skis. But it's predominantly higher ticketed homes and also cities. If you just simply take out the higher ticketed homes, well, appreciation is down a whopping 1% if you take wow. out the higher priced homes. You know, so we're not looking at this housing bubble that people had called for. And to just underscore the seasonality portion, you know, there was the fear of a buildup of inventory that people kept talking about as far as their thesis for housing bubble that occurred between April and August. And if you look at it on a chart and you see this big jump up people were like oh my gosh maybe there is a big buildup in inventory but that happens every year and the reason for seasonality is if you remember when you were back in school if a new kid comes into the classroom in the middle of the school year it's more difficult for that kid to form friendships also kids can be can be rough you know they can be mean on the new kid on the block right so or the new kid in class but the bigger reason potentially is grades so we in this country don't have a standardized teaching curriculum at a certain pace and what's learned. It's done differently everywhere. And maybe that's better. I don't know. I'm not trying to debate what's better, but it sure makes it difficult for somebody in the middle of the school year who might've been thriving grade-wise comes in somewhere else. And so much of learning is building blocks. They could be lost and their grades could suffer. So because parents don't want that, their objective would be, I would like my child to start at the beginning of the school year, which means I have to be moved into my new home when? June, July, August. So I got to be in. So when do I have to get rid of my home? Well, April, May, June, July. Mm-hmm. So that always causes more inventory for the homes that they're selling to occur April, May, June, July. So it's a very natural build. You see that every single year. But those who are trying to sell the housing bubble thesis, they will say, oh, look, they build up an inventory. But then there is also a natural slowdown in the pace of sales. And then as you get into the holidays and the, and the, and the months that are colder weather months, you tend to see real estate prices come down a little bit naturally, not crazy, 
So that's what we're experiencing right now. A lot of this is just normal seasonality that you see every year, but we are from very high levels. We're not going to see a bubble because we just don't have the inventory. Right. So there's not enough inventory out there to go. You know, if, if you want to <clears throat> take the comparison to, let's say, 2007. In 2007, for sale was 4 million units. Today, for sale, 1.14 million units. Wow. So you know, a dramatic reduction in inventory. So far fewer homes for sale. But then of those homes for sale, there's about 380,000 of those 1.4 million that are already under contract. So you can't really buy those. So somewhere in the neighborhood, somewhere in the neighborhood of, let's call it 750,000 homes for sale. And just so you know, since 2007, our population's grown by 30 million people. So the need for housing's increased at the same time inventory is being strangled. So all this tells you that home values to some degree should be supported. Now, new inventory comes from builders putting up homes, right? And builders mm -hmm. are not putting up homes the same pace they were in 2006, which was 2 million units. They're putting up homes at a level that's closer to 1.4 million. But every year, about 100,000 homes get replaced. They age, they people want to build over it, whatever. So 100,000 of those 1.4 million homes just replace existing inventory. The other 1.3 million is new inventory. You put that against what we call household formations. And household formation is, you know, the best way to explain it is, in my opinion, is you take, let's say, mom, dad, and a young child. They're living in one household. Uh, that child comes to be of age at some point where they want to move out on their own. In the U.S., the average is around age 33. So they move out. Same family unit, mom, dad, and child. But now, instead of one household, they have two. So they've formed a household. They've created a demand for more housing. So that demand is met by builders. We've been averaging about 1.7 million households formed. And remember, we're netting 1.3. Now, the last couple of months of data, which are reflective of sharply higher mortgage rates, showed that the level of household formation slowed quite a bit to about 1.2, 1.3 million. But that's just over a couple of months. As interest rates come down, and I'm sure we'll get into that, mm -hmm. you will start to see households start to be formed at a more normalized rate. You know, if you look back to when they were in, in the fives, we were forming about 1.7 million households. So, so that scenario the amount of demand should once again be greater than the supply. And the, the economics 101, that tends to be pretty supportive of home values. So yeah, no, I, I agree on the headlights. So it's our job to see the future before it becomes obvious. And Quinn, if you look beyond the headlights, you can start to see the picture. And there's so many more reasons as to why this actually could be a very good opportunity in housing. Yeah, no, I'm very excited about it. And I think you just probably posed one of the simplest financial, you know, formula or economic formulas, supply and demand. And so, you know, it's interesting to me because I heard you make a comment that the three most Googled words right now, or some of the most Googled words are recession, inflation, and housing bubble. And I think that kind of speaks to the audience, speaks to the buyer sellers that's going on out there. It's almost like the news is, is wearing on people and it's getting them to believe uh, what the headlines want them to believe. And, um, you know, I think, uh, I think that's one of the, the things that kind of leads to my next question is, are we in a recession? I know where you stand on this, but I would love our audience to hear your take. Well, you know, a recession, uh, they seem to move the goalposts on this, right? It used to be um, based upon GDP in two consecutive negative quarters of gross domestic product. 
So we got that already Mm -hmm. first and second quarter of this year, but they changed the rules. So, you know, when you change the rules, you can't go by what we used to be in existence. Right. So they said, no, this isn't a recession. This is now we use I GDP. It's, it's, it's a version of GDP that, uh, um, that averages things out. So technically speaking, we're not yet in recession, but the referee or the umpire in this is the national Bureau of economic research. And they will, let you know when you were in a recession, although it may take an, a year after you were in a recession. Right. Typically, you're out of it by then. They say, oh, yeah, you were in a recession back then. So could we be in a recession now? It's quite possible because the recessions affect people differently. You know, people say, well, you know, some economic activity. But when you look at where the economic activities come from, it appears that people had a lifestyle that they were accustomed to when they were getting their stimulus checks and things of that nature. And if you take a look at what had occurred and during the pandemic, supply chain was shut down and you Mm -hmm. couldn't go out. So you couldn't spend, so you you couldn't jack your credit cards, plus you got stimulus. So you pay down your credit cards. But since the economy's reopened, not only have we eclipsed the previous high, We've gone way above that. So people appear to be saying, I like this lifestyle. I'm going to just live off my credit cards to get there. At the same time, they've taken the savings rate pre-pandemic of about 8%. They've taken it down to 3 So people living on credit cards and drawing down on their savings. Not the hallmarks of a very strong econ- economy. Right. The other thing people say is, is, you know, they say, well, look at the unemployment rate. It's pretty low. Yes, it is low. But that's precisely when recessions begin. They don't begin when the unemployment rate's high. Every single one of them begins when the unemployment rate's at its lowest rate and starts to move up. You know, it, it's a, it, it makes sense when you think about it. At first, people say, oh, well, but in every single recession, that's what occurs. Um, take somebody who's, uh, take an economic condition where things are getting better and better and better. Mm-hmm. You need help. So you start hiring more people and some of those people come off the unemployment ranks. And as they do, the unemployment rate drops because you're employing some more of them. But then the economy eventually, because it's cyclical, flattens out and then starts to behave a little worse. And as that happens, one of the things you begin to do is let people go because now they're idle. So you see a slight tick up in the unemployment rate. But the reason why that has a cascading effect is because now the newly unemployed change their spending habits, maybe not initially. But over time, they say, hey, well, I don't have as much income coming in. I will hunker down a bit and not go out to the dinners and buy the clothes. And and those businesses that were accustomed to seeing those individuals now newly unemployed come in as customers, buying those dinners, buying those clothes and other items, feel a slowdown. So they eventually let people go. And you get that snowball effect. And that's when you see that recession. So we've already seen the tick up in unemployment rate. Um, It's only a matter of time until this happens. The other thing is you you see the... um, Yield curve inversions all over the map. They're still all inverted. But a good one to go by is the the, the 10-year Treasury yield that is actually yielding lower than what you can get for three months. So it doesn't make sense. Hey, if I'm going to put my money away and put it away for three months, I get a higher rate than if I committed for 10 months. You would think a longer commitment, like 10, I mean, for 10 years, you would think a longer commitment that like 10 years, I should get a higher rate of interest. Um, But it's in reverse. It, it, It is a sign that the economy is sick. And that's because the shorter term rates, like the three months, they're going to be more influenced by the Fed funds rate. The 10-year treasury and things like mortgage rates, they're not influenced by the Fed funds rate. They're influenced by inflation. And we're starting to see signs that inflation is coming down. Why is inflation coming down? Because the economy is slow. So that's why the 10-year yield is lower. 
and the three-month yield is higher, saying the Fed's gone too high, too much strangulation, should eventually turn out to be a significant slowdown, likely a recession. The last eight times this has occurred over the years, it's eight for eight, every time's a recession. I think to answer your question in a long way, because I wanted to give the background as to what the rationale is, I think there's good reason to believe that there is a recession. You can't, people can always change the goalposts as we've seen. Sure. But we will either we are either in or about to enter recession or recession-like conditions. It's just a matter of time until most people see that happen. Yeah, no, and that's a fantastic answer. A lot to unpack there. One of the things I wanted to come back on was, you know, we just talked about that. What does a recession mean for housing? You know, if, if someone thinks that we're going to be in one or we are in one, what does that mean for housing? So uh, if you go back to the last nine recessions, home values have held up very well. You look at the Case-Shiller Home Price Index, that's probably the gold standard because it doesn't use modeling. It takes actual homes and tracks that home's progression, when it was bought, when it was sold, and it takes millions and millions of these, and it's able to give you good appreciation rates over the years. So this level of appreciation has gone up in eight of nine recessions during and after the recession. There's one time that we didn't see that, but it was the housing bubble that came before the recession. So the housing bubble actually led us into the recession, not the recession that caused the housing bubble. Home values tend to do well because interest rates come down during recessionary periods, and that makes buying a home relatively better than renting a home. It also puts people in a position when they buy a home uh, at a lower interest rate to have more buying power to do so. So you know, it's, it's typically a good thing for housing. The one time it didn't happen was explained two factors. You know, one factor we all know about is the mortgages that were essentially fog up a mirror. You know, do you have a pulse? You are approved because there was no verification of income, no verification of assets, no verification of even if you were employed. And then you didn't have any skin in the game because you get it home zero down. And certainly your credit history did not have as great a weighting because people were getting these types of loans with not the greatest credit score. So credit score is a good a good way to predict whether you're going to be right. able to do this. And also having skin in the game is a good way to predict it, right? So, so what happened was values came down a little bit. And as soon as they did, since people did not have skin in the game, they just said, well, you know, I don't have any interest in it. Why am I going to be making payments on a home that I owe more than the value of the home? So these, are, these were conditions that caused lack of incentive to do that. But while that all were negatives at its core, the real reason for the housing bubble was simply, as in any other economic circumstance, supply and demand. So I mentioned the demand comes from household formations, right? Right. So household formations in 2006 and 2007 kind of fell off a cliff. They went way, way down significantly. And at the same time, builders built more homes than we had ever seen. Now, remember I said builders are building about 1.4 million homes now. Well, back in 2006, they put up 2 million homes. Wow. But at the same time, you had like 900,000 formations. And you had similar disparities in 2007, 2008. By 2009, you had a full-fledged housing bubble, right? There's way too much supply, not enough demand. And even with the crazy programs to fog up a mirror and buy a home, uh, people were, it was just still did not create enough demand to do that. So when we examine something like this, we want to say, hey, can this happen again, right? Because let's let's be instructional on this. And let's say, okay, uh, if it happened back then, maybe it could happen again now. So let's understand the causes because... People are going to sound the alarms and say, oh, prices went up, so it has to be a bubble, right? Well, right. if you take a look specifically at the root causes, and clearly we don't have those programs anymore, right? But again, the supply and demand. 
I just mentioned how many households are being formed and how much builders are putting up. So builders are not going to overbuild like they did. Certainly the banks that would lend the money, learn their lessons, they're going to be more restrictive. So we're not going to see that. But the demand dropping off, we can see demand vacillate. And we're seeing it now. Rates go up quite a bit. People hibernate a little bit longer. You, know, you, you don't see the activity come to be as much. But there was another factor that occurred back in 2006 that really restricted household formations. And that was because, again, the median age being 33 years old. So take 2006, that 33-year-old, when were they born? They were born 33, 1973. You got it. So in 1973, and you probably know this, there was an important occurrence that changed demographics in this country. And I'm not saying I'm for, I'm not saying I'm against, I'm not political here. I'm just giving you a statistical reason. Abortions were legalized and statistically that caused less births in 1973 and 74, which then fast forward 33 years later, and you get in 2006 and 2007, much, much fewer 33-year-olds that were then going to be forming households. And when you juxtapose that with more construction of new inventory than we had ever seen, even to this very day in this country's history, you had an imbalance in much more supply than demand. And in any circuit, any couple, widget, anything, too much supply, not enough demand for it, prices tend to fall. And that's what happened there. But when you look at, let's say, 2023, the crop of 33-year-olds were born in 1990 which had one of the highest birth rates we've ever seen. And then even the surrounding years were all very, very high birth rates. So you're not going to see that drop off a cliff like you saw happen from 1972 to 1973 and 74. You're not going to see that. So uh, for these reasons, when you look at it, you know, like, look, the media wants to kind of talk about housing, but because, well, you know, they, they know the two things in the media sell, right? Sex sells and fear sells. So they want eyeballs. So they're going to try and hit you with fear porn, right? right? So um, another big factor is in 2008, the amount of equity people had in their home was 19%. Today, it's 58%. So wow. you were able to withstand a little bit of price fluctuation and not be upside down. Um, now, some people might be, of course, but right. you're not going to have the overwhelming portion of those people be upside down like you had in 2000. And seven, 2008, where the reductions in values caused people to say, hey, I'm upside down. Plus, remember, you had a lot of those loans with zero down back then. Yeah. So you automatically started with no tolerance for a drop in price. Yeah, no. And I love that term you just said, fear porn, because that makes me laugh. Because one of the questions I wanted to ask, and I'll just jump right into it, is you know, we say the news is not your friend. Um, they're not your friend. They breed fear. But you've, you've oftentimes really taken the stance that it's not as much about fear as it is just lack of knowledge. It's inaccurate reporting time and time again um, from very high-end reporters. And, and it's almost as if they don't know what they're talking about. And, um, you know, you've done a great job countering that. And, for example, you know, the news says, oh, Federal Reserve raised the Fed funds rate. Mortgage interest rates are going to go up. And time and time again, you've said that's not true. That's not how that works. Can it happen? Yeah, but that's not true. Um, you know, what are, what are some things that we could tell the audience to that you could counter immediately that you're probably going to hear over your lifetime that the news is absolutely so, wrong? So let's, let's, let's address the one you just mentioned. So when the Fed hikes rates, they're hiking an overnight lending rate, not a mortgage rate or not a long bond rate. So long rates are going to be more sensitive, much more sensitive to inflation. So let's understand this. Mm -hmm. Inflation erodes the 
fixed payment you return if you're receiving that bond. So if I'm lending money and I'm going to get a fixed payment for a long period of time, like if it was my money lending out money on a mortgage, you know, this month I get your check and I buy a list, a shopping list of goods and services. Next month, maybe I get everything else on the list. But over time, I can't get everything on that list because inflation causing prices to rise erodes the buying power. I got to start leaving things off the list. So I still get the same check, whatever the amount was, it just doesn't go as far as it used to. I think we can all relate to that over Mm -hmm. time. Inflation causes that erosion of buying power. Well, when inflation, like it was in 2020, 2021, was very, very low, near 1%, well, I'm not experiencing much erosion. So I can afford to offer low interest rates. But as inflation has risen rather significantly, the only defense that I have against that more rapid rate of erosion is to start at a higher perch, meaning I have to collect more money every month, which means I have to charge a higher interest rate on the same loan amount, get more money every month to offset the more rapid rate of erosion due to the increase in inflation. So it's inflation that drives mortgage rates. And we can see that clearly. If you look at chart, they follow each other you know, very, very closely. It's not the Fed funds rate. Yo, thank you so much for choosing us today. We're definitely not done with our podcast, but we are going to take a really short sponsor break and then we'll get right back to the show. I've been in the lending business for 20 years. I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. And the team at Bank of England is full of advisors. They take their time to understand your needs. They take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family. And I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. They're a nationwide lender, and you can find your local branch at boemortgage.com. www.boemortgage.com. Because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the podcast. Now, here's the difference. Initially, the Fed was hiking mortgage, was hiking the Fed funds rate, and mortgage rates were also rising. But that's because the market, at the same time as the Fed was hiking rates, didn't think the Fed had inflation yet under control and that inflation was still going to rise. And there were other circumstances too. Supply chains were not back yet. You know, we, we had seen uh, energy prices up. There was a lot of reasons why inflation was rising while the Fed was hiking rates. But we've come to a turning point, and it started to happen with the data we saw in October. And as you know, we told you this was going to happen back yeah, in June. You we it. said circle, circle November 10th on your calendar. And we felt by the October data, supply chain getting back on track, the shutdowns from Shanghai and China, you'd start to see goods flow. But also the Fed hikes, which started to get serious on June 15th with the first of four 75 basis point hikes. It takes a little bit of time. You know, when the, when the Fed hikes rates, you, you don't notice anything happen that instant, right? right? But 30 days later, when you get your invoice from your loans that are business loans, home equity lines of credit, when you're shopping for a car, things of that nature, what you then are witnessing is an increase. But by the time you write the check, that's even a month after that. And maybe if you're in the middle of a buying decision, it doesn't 100% deter you. So it does take two or three months. So we felt like by October, you'd start to see inflation calm itself a bit. 
At the same time, you also had the supply chains, as I mentioned, improving that. But one of the other factors is that when new inflation data came out for October of 2022, it was going to replace October of 2021 because you look at the most recent 12 months. And October 2021's level was high. We thought 22 would be lower. So sure enough, you're starting to see that. Now, look, in, in the last month and a half, the Fed has hiked rates 1.25%, but mortgage rates have come down 1%. So it, how does that happen? Right. It happens because inflation is coming down. So each subsequent Fed rate hike is straining the economy further, slowing things down further, which brings inflation down further, and that's the friend of the bond market. Yeah, that's a big win for us. Do you think um, Do you think the Powell can stay the course? Do you think he'll stay the course to continue to shrink inflation? Or it's going to start to be. It's going to start to come under pressure. Look, you know, the Fed unfortunately is like driving a car by looking in the rearview mirror. The data that they look at is lagging, and even the inflation data. The inflation data is old because remember, as I mentioned to you, you just replaced a, a data from twelve months ago with most recent data. So. You're waiting equal what's happening in real time mm -hmm. with what happened 13 months ago or 12 months ago. You're waiting that as the same circumstance. And, and it's unfortunate that the Fed does not give more weighting to what's happening in real time. It's why they felt inflation was transitory because inflation was shooting up and they were still buying mortgage bonds, still buying treasuries, keeping rates at zero. Like in La La Land, ah, it's transitory. Because they didn't see the year-over-year -year numbers take that jump. But if they would look at what was happening in the monthly readings in real time, something was happening, but the year-over-year -year gave them cover because they said, oh, but year-over-year, -year, it's not so bad. You know, And they're doing, the, unfortunately, amazingly, making the exact same mistake today in reverse. They're talking harsher than ever about fighting inflation when inflation's already beaten. It's already right. coming down. If you look at all the elements of inflation, They've all come down. Now, if you take a look at the CPI report, the Consumer Price Index, now the, the headline number includes food and energy prices. And while we all need food and energy, the Fed would prefer to focus on what's called the core rate, which eliminates food and energy, because the Fed actions of hiking rates and lowering rates won't influence those because those are influenced by other factors. Energy prices, you know, if OPEC cuts production or raises production, that's going to be more influential with energy price. The Fed actions will not, you know. You, you open up the strategic petroleum reserve, that's going to lower energy prices. It's Fed hikes or cuts aren't going to prevent those types of decisions right. from happening, right? And weather conditions with food, the Fed can hike or cut, they're not going to control the weather. So they look at the core rate of inflation. And when we take a look at the core rate of inflation, in that weighting, shelter costs, the cost for putting a roof over your head, is representative of 39.3% of that weighting. Now, shelter costs have an enormous lag because if you think about something like a lease, you know, what I'm rolling over my lease today, I might have a lease from 10 or 12 months ago in different circumstances. When the market was so hot, I had to pony up much higher rates for that lease. But we know today they're not going up at 18% like they were 10 months ago. They're going up currently at 4.6%. So they're still going up, but at a much lower rate. Yet the way the Fed balances this and looks at it, they're giving as much weight to the 18% hike in rate rents as they are to the 4% hike in rents. So they're incorrectly weighting inflation levels much, much higher than they should be. 
kind of the analogy I use like a roller coaster. When a roller coaster gets to the top of that first initial hill to get the inertia to pick up speed, there comes a point in time where the front of the roller coaster is actually heading down, but the back of the roller coaster is still on its way up. In real life, we're in the front of the roller coaster. We're experiencing this lowering or deceleration in price pressure. But the way the Fed's looking at it, it's still pushing prices higher. Now, when we get through January, February, that's when we get all the way through the peak of the roller coaster and the data starts to then become more favorable. That won't happen till like March of 2023, because remember, there's a lag in the data. You know, you get mm-hmm. February's data is the second week of March. That's when you're going to see a more rapid drop in inflation pressures and you should see a uh, like drop in mortgage rates. So, you know, I, I think that mortgage rates, you know, when they were at seven and everybody was talking about them going to 10, there was so many stories where I, I, I you know, I was kind of like with the lone voice saying, no, they're going to five. And everybody thought I was insane. But, you know, just like when I said the 10 year treasury was going to go to a half and I said that on Fox and CNBC mm-hmm. and people wanted to pay me in five, the low all time was a half a percent. It was exactly on the head. We see 5% mortgage rates. And there's a few reasons for that. But one of them is that as you start to see lower inflationary pressures, you should get there. And at 5%, you're going to unleash a horde of buying into the marketplace to overwhelm an already low inventory environment. So we think home prices should do pretty well. Well, I know I, uh, I oftentimes laugh in my office when I tell people, I go, you can believe Barry or you can believe the news. And uh, you've been right every single time um, so far Thank over you, the last three, four years. It's really it, it's really amazing how spot on you've been, you know, oftentimes. Well, we, we just, when we just look at things, you know, we, we try and look at things logically and, and shave out the noise. And we, again, if you look just here, it's one mm-hmm. thing, but it's like a Rubik's cube. You have to look at this like a chess game and you have to look a few steps ahead and see what will, you know, when, when you turn this knob, it's going to have an effect on this. It's not just turning this knob, Fed officials, government officials, they look at turning this knob, but they're very, very bad at trying to anticipate what the unintended consequences are or what the subsequent reactions would be. They just look at this and, oh, let's fix this. But they don't understand that each one of these has a an effect. So we try to look two or three steps down the road and see what's happening. Do you think some of that has to do with the fact that most of the Fed members are institutional members, meaning they've been doing that all their life? They've not really been in, I hate using the real world, but they've not been in real world applying some of the theology that they're using? Yeah, they haven't had so much of as a newspaper route or lemonade stand to understand, you know, how the real world economy works. It's all in the world of theory. And uh, when you live in that world for so many years, many of them are lifelong, either academics, they've been in either teaching or they've been in uh, government or at the Fed their whole life. Yeah. So they don't have any understanding of how the real world economy works. Again, it's just theoretical for them. And this is why they've missed it so much. This is why they drive while looking in the rearview mirror. And any of us who look in the rearview mirror constantly while driving down a highway mm-hmm. can, can kind of empathize with the fact that's probably not a very good strategy to use. It's not a very, and this is why they cause boom cycles and bust cycles, because they always go too far with the cutting. They always go too far with the hiking, because the task at hand is, oh, the economy's slowing down. Let's just cut, 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 buy, 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 buy. But they they keep doing it. And the data showing that, oh, we're not there yet. It takes time for that data to reflect what's happening in the real world. So they're looking at data, looking in the rearview mirror while driving 90 miles an hour down the highway. So that puts us in a boom, which then they say it's too hot. 
So now we have to tighten and they tighten too far, which causes a crash. And that's exactly what they're going to do again. They do this every time. So speaking of crash, can you can you expand on by the Fed hiking rates, what the implications to the stock market or the equities market is? Well, you know, you, you make the cost of borrowing money more expensive for a lot of people. Now, we just talked about mortgages, but mortgages are a long-term bond, which is a different animal, okay? And real estate is a different animal because of supply and demand. And remember, I could sell a house and walk away. Most of the time, if I sell a home, I have to live somewhere else. So as I'm a seller, I have to be a buyer or an occupant of inventory somewhere. In a stock, I can let the stock go. I don't have to buy another stock. Right. So this is a fundamental difference that most people don't understand. Um, here's an analogy of how what the Fed's trying to do to slow things down. It's called demand destruction works. So let's rewind the clock to, I don't know, um, April of this year. A family went in to go buy a car. And they look at the car, and it's a beautiful $60,000 car. And they say, how much is the payment? It's 600 bucks a month. They say, okay, great. Now, they don't write a check for $60,000. They just sign a piece of paper, and no money comes out of that buyer's hands, and they drive off with the car. Now, the seller had to get paid for that car. And the way they got paid was somebody at a bank made a few keystroke entries, and poof, out of thin air, $60,000 appeared. That's creation of money out of thin air, which is inflationary. So what the Fed says, we have to slow that down. So what have they done? They've taken the Fed funds rate from zero to a quarter to right now, four and a quarter to four and a half. Mm -hmm. So they've made it a lot higher. So if you were going to get that car loan and you were going to pay 2%, which was very affordable, now you're talking about six and a half percent, so that same person looking at a car, if they didn't buy it back in April and they say, okay, let's go in December and take a look. They look at that vehicle, the same cost, $60,000. How much is the monthly payment? Well, it's no longer 600 a month. It's a thousand bucks a month. So what they say is, ooh, thousand bucks a month. Maybe I'll drive the car. I have a little bit longer. And therefore there's no somebody at the bank at a keystroke entry that causes poof $60,000. And that's where you see the slowdown. So Fed hikes designed to cause demand destruction to slow things down because what is inflation? It's too many dollars chasing too few goods. Now we've got the goods coming back, but the dollars, there's a lot of dollars in there between stimulus and, the, and all the spending that the government's done, creating more of this money that's out there. So what have they done? They have tried to reduce borrowing because that just creates money. 90% of the money that's out there is on credit. The 10% is actual money that you have. And, and you know, when you think about even big, big, big numbers, think about businesses. You know, I want to build a factory. I want to acquire a company. I want to do this. You're going to borrow a lot of money in order to do that. Uh, now, when the Fed funds rate was at zero, maybe you're paying 2% above that. Okay, I can, the economics makes sense. But now, instead of paying 2%, 6.5% on a $400 million, uh, the the economics don't make sense. So I don't do it. And $400 million isn't created out of thin air and put into the economy. This is what the Fed's trying to do by design. So you asked about stocks. So when it costs more money to do things, to buy inventory, to buy in bulk, because you could do so by arbitrage, you know, you, 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 I'm, I'm borrowing at you know 2%. And therefore, I could afford to keep this because my margin's 12%. You know, if the, the economics start to change. So stocks typically don't like Fed hike cycles. They don't like recessions. And 
you know, the earnings of companies go down and how stocks are often valued is you take a price to earnings multiple. So if you think that earnings on the S&P are probably going to be reduced because borrowing costs cost more and it costs more for someone to finance the purchase of your product, I'm selling something, right. but now it's costing a consumer a lot more. So they're going to buy less of it. So I'm going to sell less. I'm going to make less profit. So my profits go down and the profit price to earnings, my earnings, um, causes a drop, which means the price of my stock probably drops. And this is what we're looking at here is that it's it's likely, as is in most cases where there are recessions or slowdowns, that stock prices for a period of time do not do as well. Could it be thought that to make some of those earnings that they have forecasted, that they'll cut one of their largest expenses, which happens to be employment, to kind of add... You're already, see, you're already seeing in the tech sector, right? You know, you're already seeing that. There's lots of uh, people... And, and this is what what causes that. Mm -hmm. You're 100% right. You know, as, as things slow down, you have to let people go. And then the people that you let go, their spending habits change, which is causing the snowballing effect that we're talking about. And that's why you get into those recession-like conditions very quickly. Yeah, and that's almost kind of what the Fed is wanting when they say we're prepared to go from a 3.6 unemployment to a 5%. Is this what they're referring to? They, they are, I mean, look, let's face it. They, they screwed this thing up so bad, right? So we were down 20 million jobs, but that was all pandemic related. When the economy came back, I mean, you know, I hate when people say, oh, look how many jobs we could. You didn't create them. We just right. bounced back from a pandemic, okay? It's, 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 you know, let, let's, let's, I wish people would just kind of get real. Right. Um, those jobs weren't created. They just came back. Now, when, when the economy is, creating jobs from all of the stimulus that occurred, let's just say we created, I don't know, 10 million jobs. Let's just say we didn't, but let's right. just say that all the stimulus created 10 million jobs. You took 150 million households and you made them suffer with higher inflation because of that. So to create 10 million jobs that would have probably came back anyway, was it wise to put all that stimulus out there and make now 180 million households suffer from higher inflation, which everybody hates? I mean, you can make your own decision as to whether you think or that was a wise idea. Right. No, I agree with you. And we argue that all the time with people. One of the questions that I get asked is the people that haven't returned to the workforce, that number's gaudy. It's, I think it's 4.1 million at this point. In your opinion, we know some of those people are for, you know, early retirees, uh, health issues, whatever it may be. But where is the rest of that number coming from of people that so, I mean look, look long long covid's real okay. and people that are you know so long covid is a real issue and and then in addition to that you have and for those who don't understand what that is people so a portion of people between 10 and 25% who got covid are seeing lingering long term effects which can in some cases be debilitating so it makes them it makes it hard for them to get back to work so that's one aspect there is also a final realization that work from anywhere was the panacea that people thought you know it is Many people are seeing that it is less productive, so there is a call to get back into collaboration environments. And again, I'm not offering any kind of right. opinion here. I'm just saying what people are seeing. Um, so, so those are a couple of the factors. But when you are in a situation like like we've we've seen that uh, you know people who are baby boomers are at a certain age where they can, you know, I think it's 10,000 people, um, I'm sorry, 10 million people a year are are, um, are, are turning age 60, 65. Maybe it's, I, I don't know exactly what the number is. I know it's like 10,000 a day. So maybe it's closer to 3.5 million people a year. 
uh, are turning age 65. Wow. Um, but the age group that is now potentially uh, able to collect retirement benefits and you know take their take their retirement as first of all naturally or early, uh, you have a large segment of the population that was in the labor force that is now leaving the labor force. You should have replenishment on the younger side, so that's the way it typically works. But the way that the demographics uh, curves are from birth rates isn't always the same. So, you know, just like you saw it in housing, it's it's not balanced. You know, a lot more births in 1990 than there were in 1973, for example. But so, um, you you could be experiencing um, a a off kilter uh, demographic circumstance, and that's what's potentially causing it. But you know, some good news is is that there's probably in the next ten years, I'm very close to this. Um, breakthroughs that um, scientifically should cause us to live significantly longer. And I mean, significantly longer, wow. you know, where, um, you know, the, like 20 years longer, 25 years longer. And so I don't know if retirement at 65 is a realistic thing anymore. I mean, I think people are going to have to, because you have a lot more years not working that you're going to have to support yourself for. I mean, it's great, but you do have to make money in those years. So, uh, so we we will see if there is a resurgence back into the labor force over the next ten years. Yeah, no, I I would hope hope that would be the case. As we head into twenty twenty three, we just we're, we're closing the books on twenty twenty two. Some people call it dismal year. You know, if you've been in the, if you've been in this game for longer than twenty years, this is this is normal. We see these patterns happen. But twenty twenty three forecast. Do you see more transactions, more units being closed on the year than twenty twenty two? Well, remember twenty twenty two. It's kind of almost like you know. A different story, you know, where we were the first four months of the year was pretty robust, right? And then you started to see quite the slowdown. Uh, so, um, if you were to say, would 2023 be better than the last eight months of 2022? Yes, it will. Would it be better than the first four months of 2022? Probably not. Um, but 2023 should show signs of improvement. We should see stabilization and modest appreciation home values. You should also see interest rates uh, in the fives. Um, it's not a straight line, right? Right. So we we know that it's not going to go to five and stay there. There'll be, of course, your normal fluctuations and variances. And as news comes out and things come out that we don't see, you know, we didn't see you know, the Ukraine situation. There's these black swan events. And by definition, you just don't see them happening, and it happens, right? You know, nobody saw COVID happening before it happened, and that changed a lot of things. So um, we we can experience something like that. And I could you know, take every forecast and throw it away. But what we do see is fundamentally speaking, you have a tight inventory environment, you have inflation coming down, should mean mortgage rates come down. That means more buyers will come out there. Rents are still going up at a pretty good clip. Mm -hmm. So um, the other aspect of it is everybody talks about affordability, but you know, according to ADP, they measure 25 million records, incomes went up at 7.6%. So the affordability gap is narrowing. So as mortgage rates come down, incomes continue to go up, you'll have more people that are going to come out and buy homes because it's still a great thing to do. And you will put those people in a market that inventory is still very tight. And when you have more buyers than sellers, you see prices do pretty well. Uh, so that makes this right now a really good opportunity because this is a slow time. But you know, this is naturally a slow time. It's a great time to be a buyer, typically December, January, November. Because you know you got holidays, people are occupied. The weather isn't ideal. Uh, kids are in the middle of the school year, so you can take advantage of deals right now, where you could say, "Hey, look, you know, maybe I can negotiate like I normally can." You know, 
get a little bit. So, so get the home of your dreams today. Get it at a discount today. Um, don't just take the reduction in sales price. Apply it towards either a buy down in points or two one buy down. And mathematically, it's proven that if you know long, if you're gonna live in the home longer than two and a half years, it you will make more money by doing it that way than taking the reduction in price. And even if you're there between zero and one and a half years, if you chose the if you chose the two one buy down, that would be a better choice. So uh, the price reduction isn't is usually not the best thing to do, but that's what most people take. Right. But when you do the actual fundamental math, mathematically speaking, you have a much greater chance of being better off not taking the price reduction and using it towards um, bringing your interest rate down, either on a temporary buy-down or a permanent buy-down. So you get the home of your dreams, you get it at a discount, you get the rate you want today. And then what you're able to do is sit back next year and as the market rebounds, and remember, right now I can get a 2 or 3% discount on the home. Mm-hmm. So even if you say, oh, well, did it really matter that next year we only see 2% appreciation? Is it that big of a difference? Well, first of all, yes, it is. Um, and I'll explain why in a second, because it's an important thing to understand. But that's a 5% swing. Instead of getting a 3% reduction or a 2% reduction, I'm getting 2 or 3% appreciation. Now, remember, if you buy a home, if you buy, let's say, a $400,000 home with 10% down, that's a $40,000 investment. 5% on $40,000, 5% on a $400,000 home difference, right? That's 5% on, on $400,000 is $20,000. $20,000 on your $40,000 investment. Well, how much is that? You know, that's 50%, 50%. rate of return. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's not 5% difference. It's a huge difference on the amount that you're investing. So I think that people need to understand that, uh, that this opportunity that's, that's there right now, because again, weather, school, sentiment, you know, the, the interest rate environment, not being as favorable, all those things you could look at them as headwinds. But you know, as Sir John Templeton said, the best time to buy is the time of maximum pessimism. You know, Warren Buffett, be greedy when others are fearful. This is the time that a John Templeton, a Warren Buffett, people like myself are looking at this and saying, this is a good opportunity here. It sets up really well um, because if you wait a year from now and everybody sees it and it's not ob- and it becomes obvious, the opportunity portion of it is gone. Is there a belief in people that go, well, I'm going to wait to your point for rates. I'm going to wait for the price. You know, there's so much noise about that out there. It's almost as if they don't even realize, do you think you're the only person that thinks like this? Like (laughs) if if that does happen, rates drop dramatically or price points drop, which by the way, those two things are going to happen together. But if one offsets the other, there's going to be a flood to the market of people wanting to take advantage of that. And and when that means prices get raised because of that? Yeah, that's the exact point, Quinn. Yeah, you, you, and and I'm not saying there's going to be this, you know, traumatic flood of buyers that come on, but you should see increased buying activity in a tight inventory environment, and that is a recipe for pretty well supported prices and nice appreciation. Remember, you don't need 40% appreciation like we saw in the past two years. Yeah, 10% appreciation is amazing. 5% yes. is great because that on your investment, depending on the amount of your investment, is extraordinarily significant. Do you see a market? I know you have your own index at MBS Highway. Do you see a region stronger in 2023 leading the country? You know, the Midwest is a little more affordable. The Northeast has hung in there pretty well. You know, they do have weather um, that can be influential at this time of year. But I think that 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 market will be good. The South should be pretty strong. The West is probably 
uh, the one that got over its skis a little bit more than other areas. And, and, you know, if I were to say, what are some areas that will have, you know, a little bit more um, of an uphill climb, it would be, you know, the, your, you know, Seattle and San Diego and San Francisco, Los Angeles, Denver, um, maybe Phoenix, Austin, you know, the, these are areas that got, um, that got super, super hot and just would, would probably see a little bit more cool down, but then should be just fine over time. Look, if you're going to buy a home and you're going to move out in six or eight months, you, you got to be really good to time that right. But most people are going to buy a home and live there for seven or eight years. And uh, I think that you'll do really well yeah. in just about every case in every market over seven or eight year period. That's fantastic. Last question. And we get this one a lot. And it's data that we're just not aware of. And I was wondering if, if your group has analyzed it, but thoughts on the Airbnb short-term rental market. Um, it accounts in some markets for up to 12%. Do you see a threat of... Um, do you see any threat to that market or is that a market that you say is not going to impact or affect, you know, housing prices or the housing market? Every, everything can have an impact. And, you know, if we have a deep recession, which I don't think we'll have a deep recession that also is you know, persistent. Um, and could it have some seasonality effects where people are, you know, vacationing less or whatever the, the vacancies in Airbnbs could cause re- could cause those values of those homes to be less than what we see. But I don't think that that's going to be long lived as, you know, as we've seen, you know, the pandemic caused a a slowdown, but then, you know, once things got back, people like their vacations, people like to travel, people like to do things, you know, this part of life, you know, it's what, what what we want to do. (laughs) So I do believe that um, real estate's very local. So if there's an oversaturate saturation in the market, that's going to play a role, right? But assuming that it's not overly saturated, there could be some shorter term fluctuations. But over the longer haul, I think that it should be uh, should be pretty well supported. Yeah. No, thank you for that outlook. You know, I always learn so much, whether from your videos or getting the chances to talk to you, uh, your level of education and your wealth of knowledge that you share with everyone is so appreciated. And uh, I can't say enough great things about you. And, uh, and and thank you for being on the show. Where can our audience learn more about uh, MBS Highway? So mbshighway.com, certainly. Or um, if you want to follow me on Instagram, I put out a lot of videos on the real estate market. Um, I am Barry Habib. That's at Instagram. So uh, if you could look me up there, follow me there. I think you'll uh, you'll see a lot of the things that we were talking about as news breaks and as uh, important changes to the market that the media tends to confuse. We try and put out some very short content to uh, allow you to be able to see perhaps a uh, a more reasonable viewpoint. Yeah, I agree with that. He's always leading edge and always out in front of it. Folks, if you get an opportunity, his information will be in the show notes. It will also be on our YouTube video as well and on our website. So please check out Barry Habib at MBS Highway. Thank you so much for your time today. I know you're a busy man. Thanks for taking time to be on our show today. What's your one more? I cannot thank you enough. It's a pleasure, my friend. Be Thanks well. so much. I got one more shot, I'm gonna make it. One more chance, I'm gonna take it. And when I said it, now it's time for me to do it I got one life to live, so I put all into it, yeah